there is no secret formula for scaling customer support and boosting customer satisfaction. But there is the all-new HubSpot Service Hub, bringing service and support together in one platform so you can deliver the best experiences possible and free up a rep's time with AI-powered help desk, all so you can keep customers happy. Secrets out. Service Hub is a game changer. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. Today, we're going to talk about the seven principles to make you a winner in the AI era. I am your host, Kit Bodner, CMO at HubSpot, joined by my co-host, Kieran Flanagan, the CMO at Zapier, and this is Marketing Against the Grain. Let's get into today's show. Kieran, we spent a lot of time talking about the future. I often think that you and I are probably not content in our real lives <laughs> because we spend all of our time talking about the future. In the future. And, and then when we get to the future, we're like, ah, What about the future not, now? Not that cool. Not that cool. What about the yeah. future now? Here, you and I were talking on WhatsApp. There's a lot of uncertainty in artificial intelligence. And most of the companies, most of the executives we talk to are like, hey, what do you think is going to happen? And so what do you think is going to happen to fill in the blank with some specific thing, right? Call it search engines, call it advertising, call it sales reps, BDRs, what have you. Like there's tons of questions there, right? And I don't think you and I know the answers 100%, but what I do think is going to be really helpful to everybody is that we took the time to think about what do we know to be true about artificial intelligence? And can we distill that down into principles and use those principles as a potential predictor of the future. You and I love the idea of first principles. We're first principle obsessed. And so we wanted to do some very AI specific first principles on today's show. You Let's ready for go. This? You ready? Yeah. All right. I got our list. I'm going to start with one of my favorite principles. And I want you to talk about what you think this one means. The first one we want to start with is in an AI world, anything that depends on just brute force human work and time is going to be disrupted. So if you use humans to do manual work, all that manual work will be disrupted by AI. AI will do that work and somebody will come along and do it faster and cheaper than you're currently doing it. Yeah. Or it's specifically in knowledge work, oh, yes. which is like typically where you would think about this, you would think of manual labor. And now I have seen examples where there are new stories of potential AI robots going to be able to do manual labor things like build houses and all these things in the future. But this is like very much specific to knowledge workers and anywhere where you've had to fill the gap where I just like grinding something out with humans, there's just going to be disruption there. Again, I think of everything in terms of it's not the job that's being disrupted. It's the tasks. The tasks. That is the way to think about it. And Love human that. jobs are a series of tasks. And in the future, automation is going to be able to automate much more of those tasks. Perfect. And if you are thinking about this first principle, what you want to say is, what are the parts of my business that I irrationally rely on human time and effort and manual work to do? And how do I automate those before somebody else automates them and puts me out of business? Yeah, I think the other thing that's unwritten in here that we didn't call out that I just thought of is like within a technology company, if you judge your success by the size of your team, that is going to be heavily disrupted. Yes, you are screwed. Because I think you're going to be much more judged on the quantity of your output, right? Like today, there was a really great article from the Slack CEO. Now, there was nothing in it that was like oh, yeah, jaw-dropping, but everyone seemed to think it is jaw-dropping, which is no. you hire people and they want to hire other people. And we pay people based upon scope of work. And scope of work today, there's nothing wrong with this, right? Like I, I know that it's really, everyone wants no, to there paint. Is, there, is, there is actually but something let, wrong let me, with it. Well, there's nothing wrong with 
paying people by scope of work, right? The amount of surface area that they control or the importance of that work. And historically, the amount of people you had to do that work, the larger the task you were given or the larger the goal you were given, you just needed more people to do that task or to achieve that goal. Yeah, yeah there was overhiring. The problem with technology companies is you have empire builders where people hire just because they actually think that makes them look better if they have bigger teams. And even if they don't need bigger teams, and they're not incentivized not to have bigger teams. But I think in the future within this first principle, you are going to be judging your output and your output could be the same with two people plus AI as it historically has been with like 20 people, right? Yeah. And I think that's the magnitude of difference there. Look, the reason that the scope of work compensation model isn't good is because, especially now with AI and the rise of automation, growth has to be nonlinear. And nonlinear means that you get more out than you put in. It's not just like, oh, I add a person and I get like same amount of return of spin for every person I add. It's like, right, no, exactly. I add some automation and my revenue grows exponentially, right. not linearly. And when you compensate people on scope of work, you are incentivizing linear growth. That's the problem. Yeah. That's the problem. Yeah. To kind of put it plainly. All right. I, I got favorite ones. I've, I've kind of expanded into being a three-parter. We've talked a little bit about this on the show before, but I want to underscore for everybody. There are three generations of the internet. Web 1.0, the birth of the internet, it democratized access to information. The second generation of the internet, Web 2.0, democratized access to each other, connections. It was the social web. Web 3.0, this generation, the AI generation, democratizes understanding of complex topics. So the first principle here is the understanding of complex topics is now commoditized, which means you could have an idea for a song or have an idea for a piece of art. And before, if you didn't have the skills to write music or read music or do all those things, you couldn't do anything with it. And now AI can help you basically take that idea and turn it into an end product. And it is democratizing the understanding, at least at a basic level, of all of those skills. I actually would argue that that is slightly different now we're talking about it, which is... Ooh, I love this. Go. Yeah, it's not the understanding of complex topics. What you've actually described is you don't need to understand them at all. And it's actually expertise is commoditized because in the past, you would have to understand how to do something to get that idea out into the wild. Today or in the future, you will not have to understand how to do that thing because you can just tell someone to do it for you or tell an AI assistant to do it for you and get that idea out into the wild. So if I have to understand a complex topic, I still have to get the information and then kind of understand that. Okay, well, how do I create that thing? Or how do I do that thing? Or how do I like get from A to B? But actually what AI does is, you know, I don't have to learn any of that stuff, right? I, I just mm -hmm. have to tell it to do it and it will do it for me. So I wonder if it's like expertise in a lot of areas, it's not commoditized. Well, expertise is definitely commoditized. I think those two things go part and parcel. I don't think they're actually mutually exclusive, expertise and understanding. I think they're very related. But if you're thinking about the future of your business, what you want to say here is the uniqueness of understanding and the barrier to entries of skills is not a moat that is going to protect my business from being disrupted as much in the future as it was in the past. Right. Right. And AI is going to have a higher potential to disrupt on that expertise and understanding. Right. In the past three to five years, if you were a coder, you could have spent your weekends learning how to be better than the other coders who've all the same experience with you, but you put in those extra hours. Yes, you could outwork them. And today that coder has closed the gap because they've using these kind of co-pilots and tools. And that's the commoditization of expertise. Are you saying we're moving from an era of outwork to an era of outthink? That would actually be, if we are, that would be great for the world. 
I think it would be amazing for the world. And that's, that's what you're tipping at. I don't know if it's true, but you're kind of saying, hey, maybe we're heading there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we can all have like work-life balance, but people who have just the better ideas and able to, are able to get those ideas out into the wild now will actually be much more successful versus the person who is just willing to mm-hmm. work 24-7 for seven days a week. Well, one of your principles that you shared was right in line with that, which is creative ideas are priceless. Execution of those ideas commoditized. Explain what that means. Yeah, when I think of AI, there's three different categories of creativity. There's being able to mix ideas together. There's being able to create ideas within a framework that you give it. And there's been able to come up with net new ideas. And if you look at AI across, we've covered this across like text, image, video. It for the most part is limited in those two buckets, right? It can actually mix ideas together. Like in terms of text, you can give it some content from a book or something and ask it to like take your idea and take the content from the book and splice them together and give you some output. And that output is like fine. Like if you're an okay writer, it's fine. It will actually get you to good. If you're a great writer, it doesn't actually improve anything for you. Images very similar, uh, can take things, work within an existing style guide and give you something back. And video, very similar. But it cannot create brand new ideas, right? If I'm a marketer and I'm sitting there with these text, images, and video tools, I'm going to use elements from each of those different things in different ways. I think images is by far the most ship level ready. Like I'm actually going to take things and put them straight into my production line. Video, if I'm really good at video, I can take things there and actually use them within my marketing and in text, it actually is good for like a research assistant and an, an assistant. But none of those things are going to create net new ideas that's going to really blow up my marketing. And so creative ideas are still priceless. And I would say even more so because people who have great ideas, I think, get held back or all their time gets sucked away by the execution of those ideas. It's just hard to use all these tools and do things to bring them into market. And so I think ideas are going to go up in value because the execution of those ideas, and we pay people a lot of money to bring those ideas to fruition, is going to get commoditized. I love that one. Another one that you had that might be my favorite, and I might be very, very jealous. Oh, yeah. I nailed that. Which one? I, I hate it. <laughs> okay, I nailed it. You just tell me which one I did. I think it's the last one. But You had the cost to take risks are near zero. Right. And that is pretty brilliant. You're basically saying that the old adage of like fortune favors the bold is actually going to get far more true because the cost to actually try something and see if it works is dropping to, if not zero, very, very close to zero, right? Right. We covered it on an episode recently. In a not too distant future, you're going to be able to build a chatbot equivalent power of ChatGPT that can run 8.5 billion queries a day comparable to what Google does today for $650. Can I not take that $650 and do some incredible things and try things out? Like the minimal viable version. So when you want to test something and you want to launch something new, you do a minimal viable version. So what is a minimal viable version? Well, I want to use the least amount of resources and take on the least amount of expense to prove an idea is valid. Now, minimal viable versions for a lot of things still cost resources, still cost some amount of money, and they are still a detractor from trying a lot of different things and taking risks. The cost of doing those things is going to depreciate so, so fast that I'm going to be able to try so many different things. And you're right that it's related to the first thing, which again, people with great ideas can get more of those ideas out into the world to see which ones actually resonate. And I think they're the people that are going to be much more successful and they are going to benefit a lot from the abilities of AI to take things and actually be able to execute on them. Yeah, I think that is 100% what's going to happen. And I think one of the epidemics we have in business today, Kieran, is conservatism. 
Like people are just so scared of doing anything different or new or taking risk. And that has to change. And what I love about this principle is that's going to force that to change. Everyone's in the middle. Yeah, everybody is too worried about having a predictable outcome or mitigating the bad thing that might happen versus solving for the best thing that could happen. The crazy thing is- Maybe this is just the optimist in me, but it drives me No, I think uh, for most technology companies, the worst thing is happening right now, right? Correct. The AI thing is probably the thing that is most impactful for most businesses. And who knows if it's a tailwind or a headwind. So now is a great time to take risk. And I think that's why there are certain personality types who enjoy uncertainty, enjoy chaos, enjoy figuring out something brand new that has not been figured out before. And actually are like, this is you and awesome. I, buddy. We're in this together. <laughs> this is so cool. Yeah, like we may all so get tra happy. trampled upon. So but happy. Man, I'm going to be smiling with a big face, lying on the ground, getting trampled all over myself, <laughs> getting trampled on with joy in my face. Nothing makes me sadder than trying to like figure out how to scale this like very boring process to like- Just tweak the knobs. Hundreds of people I'm and tweaking the knobs. There's nothing better than discovering something new and figuring it out, right? It's the best part. It's the best part. We'll be right back. But before, let me tell you about another podcast I love. Nudge, hosted by Phil Agnew, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Ever noticed how the smallest changes can have the biggest impact? On Nudge, you learn simple evidence-backed tips to help you kick bad habits, get a raise, grow a business. Every bite-sized 20-minute show comes packed with practical advice. Nudge is fast-paced, but it's still insightful with real-world examples that you can apply. Oh, and it's the UK's fastest growing business podcast. If you want an MBA's worth of insight one podcast, this is the right show for you. Entrepreneurs will love the show because it's filled with repeatable proven studies, not hearsay and one-off success stories. You're going to love the show because I was interviewed by Phil. You can go check out my episode. And I recently listened to an awesome episode. It's called Six Scientifically Proven Persuasion Techniques. It's a must listen for anyone in marketing. Listen to Nudge wherever you get your podcasts. I, I got a few more principles left. This is one of mine that I think is really important is that information asymmetry no longer exists. So what does that mean? It means in the olden days, if you were a buyer, you would have to go to that company. Normally would have to talk to a salesperson or somebody at that company to figure out pricing, use cases of that product for your business specifically, all of those things. And with AI, that is quickly going away. And that all the information that a company has is available to you if you want it without having to talk to anybody else. And that leveling of the information playing field gives the buyers way more power than they have ever had and will force companies to think about enabling their buyers much more than they think about enabling their sellers. Like it's inbound. It's just an evolution of inbound. Like inbound was created and like the original that sprung from consumers having much more power as brands were creating more things on the internet and the internet rise in popularity and people being able to like get all the information they needed themselves. But that wasn't true of all the information. Like there's mm -hmm. just a lot of information that companies have that you have to go talk to the salesperson, talk to the support person, like get connected to a, to a human. And I think in this world, you're right. Like you have an ever-present agent that can give you the information around the company because a company's best interest is to give that agent all the information they can so people can query it 24-7. And so I think all of that stuff does not get locked away. And you actually, consumers have more control than they've ever had before. AI is much more 
of a tailwind for buyers than it is for sellers. AI is way, way, way better for buyers than sellers. Right. Okay, I think we have time for like two more, Karen. So one that we've got here is consumer impatience and entitlement will be at an all-time high. I love you put entitlement in there. Like those entitled consumers. No, but but entitlement (laughs) I think is a very important word where it's like the best way to describe expectations. Because when you have endless choice, you get to be entitled, right? Like if you're saying that there is going to be more choice than ever before, then a consumer gets to be entitled. That is a privilege that that is just born out of those market circumstances. Right. Well, the impatience is because you never expect to have to wait in line for an answer again. I think that's going to look archaic. The times where I have to sit on the phone with my broadband company for like an entire day to try to get an answer to something. None of that stuff exists in the future. Consumers are going to expect to get answers whenever they need answers in any kind of form, whether that's chat, email, WhatsApp, it doesn't really matter. They expect to get 24-7 answers because an agent can give them those answers. And the entitlement to me is like, they expect the concierge experience because they expect agents to be able to do most of the work. So none of this stuff is not at cost to the company. The company has agents set up, the agents do all that work for them. And everyone gets the concierge experience. I just think that the thing I don't know about is like, where do you find leverage? Yeah, That's what I always continue to think about is like, where's the leverage? Where's the leverage? Where's the leverage? If everyone has a concierge experience, what is, like, other than me driving around <laughs> to your office and bringing you tea and cakes. So, I love and tea and you cakes, down please. And telling you you're a great person and picking you up and telling you lots of great things about yourself. I don't know what the next part of one-to-many is if the one-to-many experience becomes like a very like one-to-one type experience. I think that's actually a very good point and it happens to be exceptionally true. I don't know what the differentiation is, but I know in the short term, there's going to be a lot of differentiation made by companies who facilitate you know, that speed and around the clock access to information and service versus the old school way of waiting, right? And that's, if you're predicting the future around AI, that's one of the things that I think is going to happen. All right. Our last principle of the day is that chat user interfaces are just as popular and important as graphical user interfaces. People are going to want to use natural language to do things online in the same way that they've historically used graphical point and click interfaces to do things online. Is that true? I do agree with that. Every brand is going to have a natural language layer and chat is going to be part of every single product experience. I don't think you're going to use a product in the future that doesn't have some way to chat with that product. Like me being able to tell the product through natural language, please do this for me, please do this for me. I think all platforms build that into their app. Again, when we think about the Sam Outman roadmap episode that we just did, we covered what was OpenAI's secret roadmap, product roadmap, and Sam Outman talked about in there, hey, the thing we think we got wrong about the plugins, and these plugins don't have product market fit, is people didn't want to create their app in ChatGPT, people wanted to bring ChatGPT into their app. And that's an important distinction because it's what you're saying here is every product has a ChatGPT natural language interface component Correct. to it. Correct. And uh, graphical interfaces, graphical UIs, I don't think they go away. We've no. just seen the biggest technology brand in the world launch Vision Pro glasses, which bring graphical UIs that you can control with your hands into your like everyday presence, right? You actually wear it on your face. And so I think those two things actually are just maneuvering in like very different ways, but actually are going to be very important to how we like consume content, use software in the future. Yeah, that's why I said they're going to be equally as important, right? 
I think we're going to live in a world where graphical user interfaces and text or chat-based user interfaces coincide with each other. Right. And they're going to kind of relate and rub off on each other, right? Like one of the things about a chat user interface is you kind of go back and forth and iterate on something. That same iteration, I think, will move over to a graphical user interface in different ways, right? Like they'll start to blend and start to merge. And what this means for everybody in the future of AI and what does it mean for our business, it means that customers are going to want, again, a very adaptable way to interact with your business. And that interaction is going to look like a mix of like a visual interaction and a text-based interaction, right? Right. And balancing that and figure out where one is better than the other is going to present a bunch of opportunity to you as a marketer, to you as a founder. And so that is what we are talking about here today. Those are our principles for predicting the future of AI because AI is uncertain. But if you have those principles, you can understand directionally the impact AI is going to have and then use them to figure out what strategic choices and investment choices you need to make in your own business to be prepared for whatever change might work out in, in terms of like what specifically might happen. The case of the future, as long as you have a rough understanding of the direction, I think, you're normally way ahead of everyone else. You don't need to know the answer ahead of time. You need to know kind of the direction the answer is going. Do you agree with that, Kieran? I agree. I think uh, this maybe relates to my very last first principle I'll just leave people with, which please, I do think please. is one we should like just cite as fast movers get unfairly rewarded, which I think there's always been a reward for adopting things before the masses. I think in terms of AI, it has never been more prevalent. It has never been more important. You will never be more rewarded than with this technology to be in that fast mover bucket. Because again, I think commoditization happens much faster. And so when everyone catches up, you lose some of that advantage, but that advantage for the first movers and integrating AI into your work, integrating AI into your go-to-market, integrating AI into your marketing is so much bigger than those who are not doing that. And I, there's still like a big discrepancy between what we talk about every day and what the common, most companies are actually doing. Correct. And are still like way, 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 way behind and trying to figure out how to integrate this into the business. If you were watching the show, you were already ahead. Exactly. And if you want to keep being ahead, hit that subscribe button because subscribe. we are obsessed with staying ahead on this show and we are obsessed with giving you the tools and the insights to actually be ahead. And the principles today, I think are a great example of us trying to do that. Leave a comment in the YouTube if you've got a favorite principle or if you have one of your own that you think we left off that we should have included in today's show. That being said, that was First Principles for AI. It was awesome. Thank you so much for watching today and we'll be back real soon on Marketing Instagram.